would you please turn in your Bibles to chapter 15? I just want to uh, pray here in just a moment and just also just acknowledge that uh, uh, we both rejoice and mourn with the, with the West family over uh, Dave's father going to home to be with the Lord, Jane's husband. And so we know that it has been... Um, it has been a day of trouble. It has been a day of affliction. And so we praise God for the body of Christ, which you're surrounded by. And, and, uh, and of course, we rejoice with you that, that uh, Dean is at home with the Lord. So let's pray together, and then we'll open his word. Father, we are so grateful for the hope that we have in your son Jesus, that he has gone before us, and that he has made the way to you possible. We've sang about the work of our salvation being finished, and And we've been focusing in over the last few weeks on the victory that was declared that when you rose Jesus from the dead. And so we rejoice especially today as we as we think of of Dean West being with you now in your presence to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. And this what what uh, where Dean now is, is where we all long to be. And. What the West family has gone through, everyone in this room will go through, both through watching other loved ones pass, but also through ourselves facing death. And the only hope that we truly have is not the hope that God isn't real and that judgment in hell isn't real and that that we just stop and cease to exist. No, our hope is in that Christ, the first fruits of our salvation, has gone before us and will call each one of us to himself because he's paid the price of our sins. And we rejoice in this. And I pray that you'll use the preaching this morning to further proclaim these glorious truths rooted in your sufficient word with the help of your Holy Spirit. And we ask this in Christ's name and for his glory and honor. Amen. So in chapter 15, uh, Paul is attempting to show how irresponsible these Corinthians were in in arguing that there is no resurrection from the dead. And he did this by showing them what the implications would be if the dead are not raised. You can sum up verses uh, 12 through 19 by simply saying, If the dead are not raised, then neither is Christ, and our faith and our hope is, is futile. Well, thankfully, that's not the case. As Paul, when he was speaking in verses 12 through 19, was speaking hypothetically. What if it wasn't true? That's hypothetical. And he lists out all the things that wouldn't be true. But it is true. Beginning in verse 20, Paul switches now to demonstrate that Christ's resurrection has made the resurrection of the dead both necessary and inevitable. Let's read together verses 20 through 28. Follow along with me. But now, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ's at his coming, then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, 
when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it's evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. And so this morning, I want to continue speaking about God's absolute supremacy in Christ's resurrection. And so last week, we, we began looking at verses 20 through 28, and in these verses, Paul is showing us how God dealt death a fatal blow when he raised Christ from the dead. So he proved that death could not hold on to Christ. But Christ was only the first fruits of those alive from the dead. The full harvest, right, using this agricultural metaphor that he introduces here, the full harvest of all believers who die in Christ will be brought in. The first fruit in Christ has been brought in, and all the rest will be brought into. The full harvest. Death cannot hold onto those who do not belong who do belong to Christ. So here's how I've summarized what Paul is saying. The dead will rise, and death will be defeated, because God, who is supreme over all, raised Christ, who is sovereign over life. The dead will rise, and death will be defeated. Because God, who is supreme over all, raised Christ, who is sovereign over life. So last week we saw this first half, that Christ is sovereign over life. He's the source of life. He is the source of resurrection. And he gives it to those who are united to him by faith. Now, Paul often speaks of the believer's union with Christ in his letters. Uh, and rightly so, because it is the reason why we benefit from what Christ accomplishes. We will be raised because we are in Christ. Those are the, the words that we so often see in the New Testament, especially from Paul, that speak to our being united to him. So because we are in Christ, we will be raised with Christ. Um, we are united to him by faith to the one. We are united to the one whom God raised, and so we will be raised. So what happens to him happens to those who are in him, united to him by faith. So this understanding of our union with Christ is helpful with the two points that Paul makes here about Christ being sovereign over life. Paul says in verse 20, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. And so Jews were familiar, who were familiar with the law, they knew that God required them to offer the first fruits fruits of their harvest to him. It honored him as the giver of the harvest. But Paul is using this term not so much to speak regarding the sacrifice of the first fruits, but to emphasize the link between the first fruit and that of the whole harvest that that first fruit represents. The resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of those who are in Jesus are integrally linked they, they cannot be separated. So by calling Jesus 
the first fruits of the resurrection, the full harvest of all those who are in Christ, will also therefore be brought in. Our resurrection as believers is absolutely inevitable. And we know this to be true because in the same way that sin and death spread to all men through Adam, so life has come to all men through the resurrection of Christ. That's what he points out here in verses 21 and 22. He first points out that death came to all men by one man. He says, by one man came death. In Adam all die. And secondly, then he says, he's using that universal effect of Adam's sin upon all men to illustrate the universal effect that comes from Christ rising from the dead. He says, life came to believers by one man. In the same way that death came to all men by one man, life came to believers by one man. He says, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. So also in Christ all will be made alive. So apart from Christ, Adam is our representative. But Christ now stands as the representative head of a new humanity. And whatever happens to him happens to those who are in him. Christ is the first fruits. He is God's pledge that all who belong to God, even though they have died, they will be raised from the dead. And then Paul shows in verse 23 that all in Christ will be raised when Christ returns. He says, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ's at his coming. And then comes the end. So Christ here, picture him as our glorious leader going out before us. He becomes a man to taste death for everyone. And in so doing, he leads then many sons to glory. He rises first. And then at his return, all who have fallen asleep in Christ will assemble at the sound of the trumpet. And then those who are alive at his return in the, in the twinkling of an eye, they are changed. They are joined together with the Lord and then we will always be with him. What, what a long-awaited and glorious day this will be. And so what Paul has shown so far is that the dead will rise and death will be defeated because God raised Christ who is sovereign over life. The process of death that, begun, that had begun in Adam has now been overturned through the resurrection. So by raising Christ from the dead, God has in fact triumphed over death for all those who are in Christ. But there's an obvious problem that still must be addressed. Can you see the glaring problem? Death has been conquered, we're told. Can you see the glaring problem? If Christ has defeated death for all those who believe in Him, well, why do believers still die? It doesn't seem like much of a triumph, does it? We still die. Well, this helps underscore why believers must be raised. First of all, because they are in Christ who has already been raised, so all who are in Christ will be raised. Secondly, because only by the resurrection of all believers will death, right? Will death, this last enemy of death, which is still around, still haunting man. Only through the resurrection 
of the dead. Will all believers then, uh, excuse me, only through the resurrection of the dead will death itself, the last enemy, finally be defeated. And only then will God be all in all, as Paul says in verse 28. So that's where we're headed now in this section. So first Paul showed that the dead will rise, death is defeated, because God raised Christ, who's sovereign over life, and now his burden, Paul's burden here, is to prove how the resurrection, how through it, the resurrection, God is supreme over all. So that's this next section. First, we saw that Christ is sovereign over life, and now we look at how God is supreme over all. And it shows the importance of the resurrection here. That's what this is going to show us. So in verse 23, Paul is laying out the the order of the resurrection. We looked at this last week. Christ is out front. He's the first fruits of those who are alive from the dead, followed by all those then who are his when he returns. And he says, then comes the end. Verse 24, then comes the end. And so... With the resurrection of the dead, the end, the goal, will be reached. This end has two parts to it. The first part is the neutralizing of all opposition, of which death represents the last. It is the last. At that time, the victorious son then will hand over the rulership to God the Father, who is both the source and the goal of all that is. So the one and only God has set in motion the events that are going to lead up to the destruction of death, our final enemy. So we can see that the reason why we still die is because death has not yet been fully defeated. But its death is certain. And when will death prove to have been absolutely dead? when it can't hold on to anybody anymore. Let's keep looking. So no ruler, no authority, no power, no enemy, not even death, is over God. He's supreme over all. Or as Paul puts it, he is all in all. So let's walk now through how Paul lays out the resurrection of the dead and how it is essentially linked to the supremacy of God over all. First, all opposition will be fully destroyed by Christ. Second, death will be finally defeated by Christ. And then last, the kingdom will be freely delivered to God by Christ. So let's look at each of these. So after the dead are raised, verse 24 says, then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father when he has abolished all rule and all authority And all power, all rule and all authority and power. So Paul defines the end as being the time, right? He talks about then comes the end and then he defines it. He says the end is defined by when he, and that is Christ, hands over the kingdom to the God and Father. That's what happens at the end. But before that happens, before we get there, Paul says there's something that has to happen first before that can happen. All opposition will be fully destroyed by Christ. All opposition will be fully destroyed by Christ. So the kingdom will only be handed over, 
He says, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. That's verse 24. So what what is Paul referring to here when he talks about rule, authority and power? There's other places where Paul uses these same kind of abstract, impersonal terms to refer to what are um, we would assume are different types of powerful spiritual beings. For example, two of these three terms that Paul uses here are used in Ephesians 6.12, the spiritual battle passage that we're all familiar with. And he says, for our struggle, Ephesians 6.12 says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against rulers, and that's the same term here for rule. It's against the powers, that's the same word for authority, and it's against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And so that's where we tend to think that these types of terms are linked with spiritual forces of wickedness. But notice that Paul, in back in 1 Corinthians here, when he says in verse 24, when he uses these terms, what you'll notice is that Paul doesn't go into any detail here. He just tells us that that he will he will abolish all rule and authority and power, and he doesn't give us any other detail than that. So that helps us to understand something that it's not important that we know any more than that these are forces of wickedness, that they threaten to oppose the reign of Christ, um, they might threaten to overwhelm God's people. Are they all supernatural powers being referred to here? Well, we can't say because we don't have much information to go on. They could include the overall impact, let's say, of, of evil that comes through the, the rule of anti-Christian uh, world powers or cultures that threaten the gospel or the church. Whatever they are, though, they seek to diminish Christ's glory, and how they've been active in blinding and deceiving people to his glory so that people wouldn't put their trust in him and give him glory. And therefore, they are greater enemies than, than you or I can handle. Because they all challenge the lordship of Christ, well, they must be overcome by the Lord himself. And the word that Paul uses here, he says abolished, which has the idea of dethroning or overthrowing. Now, Paul doesn't tell us how he's going to do this. He only tells us that it will happen. And he says that it will happen prior to his handing over of the kingdom to God, to the God and Father. Now, I know you may have more questions about what Paul is describing, but... What we need to understand is that Paul here in this passage, he's not interested in laying out for us any end times cosmic battles. That's not what he's focused on here. In fact, he's laser focused on showing the Corinthians that Christ's resurrection will culminate in the dethroning of all powers that oppose Christ's rule. And so this tells you what it means to believe that Christ rose from the dead. It's not just that you will rise too. Christ rose from the dead, so I will rise. Yay. That it, it's much more than that, isn't it? We need to hold fast to the conviction here 
that evil will not win. Evil will not win. There will be victims of evil. Maybe you're one of them. Maybe someone you love has suffered at the hands of, of some wicked person. And maybe by maybe what has made the evil done to you all the more difficult to bear is the thought that evil seems to have won. That, that justice has been denied. That is hard to bear. And justice may indeed be delayed. But my friends, from here we see justice is not denied. Delayed justice is still justice. The wicked may escape accountability in this life, but there is a resurrection of the dead. Both the righteous and the unrighteous. Paul's focus here mainly is the righteous, but we've alluded in in other sermons, there is the resurrection of the unrighteous. And the day of victory over all opposition to God, over all that is evil, over all the evil that has been perpetrated by wicked men and women, that day is coming. That glorious day was made certain the day that God rose Christ from the grave and that day belongs to Him who raises the dead. So this God who raises the dead, He is supreme over all and God has set in motion the final destruction of the last enemy, which is death. And when that occurs, God's absolute supremacy will be undisputable. He will be all in all. So Christ's role in this is to bring about the destruction of death through the resurrection of believers who are inseparably linked to his resurrection. So when the bodies of the believing dead are raised, all God's enemies will be subject to God, the one who subjected all things to Christ. Now we've seen that that first all opposition must be fully destroyed by Christ. The last of that opposition is death itself. So being such a formidable enemy, death is a formidable enemy of all men everywhere, Paul now sets it apart. He wants to make special mention of the defeat of the enemy of all men. So the second event by which God demonstrates his supremacy over all is death will be finally defeated by Christ. So he says in verse 25, here he explains the reason why all opposition against Christ will be destroyed. Verse 25, he says, for he, Christ, for he must reign. Now, if you're reading through here or if you listened as I was reading, you, you realize there's a lot of pronouns in this section. And that's part of the challenge of the verses here is determining who these pronouns are referring to. Christ, who is also referred to here as the Son, or God the Father, when he says he, who's he referring to? Christ or the Father? Because in some cases it could be either. Right? Both are God. Both are distinct persons. And so we, we recognize we, we have to proceed carefully. So from verse 24, we have Christ as the one who hands over the kingdom to the God and Father. So God cannot hand the kingdom over to himself. This is Christ doing this. 
Christ hands over the kingdom to the Father. Christ then is the one who abolishes all rule and all authority and power. And so that means that Christ is the subject of verse 25. For he must reign. This is speaking about Christ. The verb here, must reign, could also be translated, must continue to reign. So Christ is reigning right now. He's on the throne. He has been reigning from the time of his resurrection. He will continue to reign until the time of God's choosing when every enemy is overthrown. And so when you look around the world, when you look at our country and you look at our state and it seems like wickedness prevails and righteousness is a lost cause, which it does seem that way many times, doesn't it, if we're honest? Well, just remember this verse. There is a day of reckoning coming for all those who oppose Christ's reign. Peter refers to this. Turn, keep your finger here and turn over to Second Peter. Second Peter chapter 3. Let's read together verses 3 through 9. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 9. He says this, Know this, first of all, verse 3, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Oh, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. See, the, the Lord is not being slow in fulfilling his promise to return. The day of judgment when ungodly men will be destroyed, it is fixed on God's divine calendar. He's not being slow. He's not changing his plans. No, he's being patient. It's a big difference, isn't there? He's being patient. He is at work in all the nations and amongst all the peoples from which he is calling out his elect out of darkness. He's bringing them, he's bringing about in his kindness their repentance. He doesn't desire for any of them to perish. He's at work calling to himself. Not one of these whom he has chosen will be forsaken. See, Christ has not yet returned because the work of saving all those who are his is not yet complete. Puts a different view of missions, doesn't it? We have work to do in the nations. The sooner we get this work done, the sooner the sun returns and we go to be with him. So get your eyes off the wicked. Get them onto your victorious Savior who is reigning right now and will in due time put all his enemies under his feet. So Paul then, back in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul then gives two reasons 
why, why Christ must reign. Both of which come out of passages about the Messiah from the Psalms. So first, Paul says at the end of verse 25, you don't see it in quotes or italics here, but he says, until he has put all his enemies under his feet. He is drawing this statement from Psalm 110, verse 1. David in that psalm is the one who's speaking. And he says, he says the Lord says to my Lord. So again, we, who, who, who's being referred to? David is talking. He's saying, the Lord, God, says to my, that's David, to my Lord, which is Christ. So, God says to Christ, that's what, that's what he's saying here. God says this to Christ, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool of your feet. So, that's what's being referred to in verse 25, although it's not a direct quote. So, Paul is paraphrasing. We paraphrase oftentimes. We don't do it in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We do it probably because we haven't worked hard at memorizing Scripture. But Paul here chooses to paraphrase this passage rather than directly quote it. But he does quote, though, from another place. And we see this in verse 27. And this comes out of Psalm chapter 8, verse 6. Psalm 8, verse 6. He says, this is Psalm 8, 6. It says, you make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. For he, and then 27 reads, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. And you see that in all caps. And that just gives you that visual signal that he's quoting directly from the Old Testament, which in this case is Psalm 8, verse 6. Now, here's what's interesting. If you were to look up each of these psalms in their respective context, you would notice that the one who is putting the enemies under the Messiah's feet is God. But... When you look back here in 1 Corinthians, it's clear from the context that Paul attributes the conquering to Christ himself. So the Psalms say God is the one doing this. Paul is saying Christ is the one who's doing this. He speaks of Christ's coming in verse 23 when he hands over the kingdom to God. Verse 24, he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. Verse 24, and so he said all these things... Christ, and so to shift in these quotations to God being the one who who puts all the enemies under Christ's feet, well, that might have been a bit confusing for the reader. And if that is what Paul wanted us to know, then he would have explicitly said that God is doing the subjecting. Not only that, but, but Christ being the subject explains, he's explaining why it's necessary that Christ continue to reign. He's the Lord. He's not reigning passively from afar. He's not off in heaven at the right hand of God and going, when can I go, Father? What's going on down there, Father? No, he's reigning right now. Christ saved his people from death by dying in their place. He's not going to somehow be removed and wonder what's happening. He is actively engaged in subduing all the powers that are hostile to God right up until the end when they are fully and finally overthrown. And so this, what we can do is we can pause here just for a second and learn something that we observe in this passage. It gives us a good opportunity to see the activity of our triune God. 
We shouldn't think of Christ as ever acting independently of God or of God acting independently of Christ or of one doing all the work while the other sits by and does nothing. So what this here, what this helps us to see is that although it is Jesus who actually destroys every rule and authority and power, that's what Paul is pointing to. It's God who's doing it through Jesus. That's what the Psalms remind us of. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the one who is reigning. Jesus is the one who will reign until God places all his enemies and death included under his feet, which he did by subduing death when God raised him from the dead. God, though, is the one ultimately behind what the Messiah accomplishes. God is the ultimate cause of the resurrection of Christ, the first fruits, and then all those who are united to him by faith. And when that happens, he says, verse 26, the last enemy, which Paul says is death, that's when it will be abolished. So we can say that God is at work here. Through Christ, who is at work here. And in the end, death will be abolished. Death is truly an enemy. That's how death is portrayed in the Scriptures, as an enemy. Death is not something that just happens. It's not wrong to say that death is a part of life, because in Adam all die, right? But we say that, many times you'll hear that, to think that, you know, oh, the circle of life is the things just keep going on and on as they have always been and always will be. It's just a circle of life that just keeps on flowing. No, that is not the way God ever intended it to be. That is not the way it will be in the end. This circle of life is going to be broken. So, yes, death is a part of life because in Adam all die, but not because that's just the way it is. Death is a consequence of sin. It's not a part of God's plan for life. Death, therefore, is a usurper of the life that God gives, and therefore it must be destroyed. And that's why you see death depicted in Scripture as, as doing things. It's personified. That's why we see it as an enemy. Listen to the vivid description that David paints of death in Psalm 18. He says, The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of ungodliness terrified me. The cords of Sheol, the place of the dead, they surround me. The snares of death confronted me. See, death, it strangles with cords. Fear of it causes great anguish and great sorrow. Psalm 116, it says... The cords of death encompassed me and the terrors of Sheol came upon me. I found distress and sorrow. See, death is like this great cosmic power which has entered into our world through Adam and has reigned over everyone ever since. But through our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ, death's reign has been overturned. Even more than that, death itself has been abolished. And that's why Paul can say with absolute certainty what he says, for example, in Romans 8, 38 and 39, that not even death can separate believers from God's love. The dead in Christ belong to Christ. Romans 14, he says, For if we live, 
We live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died, and then he refers to the resurrection. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. See, this death of death began with Jesus' resurrection, and it will be completed with the resurrection of all believers at the end. And this is why believers can face death with confidence and without fear. Now, let's be honest, none of us look at death with any great relish. We all have a fear of perhaps the process of our death. And rightly so. We recognize it. It may not be something that we... We certainly wouldn't put it in the category, this is fun. So we recognize that death itself, there is an element to it that remains unknown. How will I die? What will it be like when I die? But that's why he says, even in the valley of the shadow of death, I'm with you. To comfort us in that hour that is coming for every one of us. You know, when a friend visited Pastor Benjamin Parsons as he was dying in 1855, He asked him, how are you today, sir? Parsons replied, my head is resting very, very sweetly on three pillows. Infinite power, infinite love, and infinite wisdom. When the Puritan preacher Thomas Godwin lay dying in 1690, this is what he said. He said, "Is, is this dying? How I have dreaded as an enemy, this smiling friend. See, when what turns the enemy of death into a smiling friend, that's the question we want to ask. How is it that enemy can be a smiling friend to the believer in Christ? Well, he's going to tell us that towards the end of the chapter, but just a brief preview. He takes the sting away from He has removed its sting. And He's made it instead the way by which those who die in Christ are are stripped of this earthly, perishable body and given new, heavenly, imperishable bodies that are fit for eternal life in the kingdom of God. Now we'll cover all that when we get to that section at the end of chapter 15. You know, at present though, death is not yet fully defeated. If Christ does not return, what does that mean for all of us here? We will all die. But if you belong to Christ, you will be raised with Christ. The first fruits of those alive from the dead. But death's days as an enemy for man are numbered. Christ will finally defeat death when he rescues from the clutches of death all those who belong to him. So when death is finally destroyed, thirdly, then, and finally, he says, the kingdom will be freely delivered to God by Christ. This is the third way by which we see God's supremacy over all. The kingdom will be freely delivered over to God by Christ. And it will be a victorious kingdom where there is no more opposition whatsoever to Christ or to God's purposes. 
He says in verse 28, our last verse, when all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself also will be subjected to the One who subjected all things to Him. So Paul here, he highlights Christ as the Son. He's doing that to spotlight His relationship to the Father. Of verse 24, right? Where he calls him the God and Father. Now he's talking about the Son in verse 28. And so Paul is drawing our focus here to the submission of the Son to the Father. So verse 28 is Paul further describing here the end that he referred to back in verse 24, right? Then comes the end when he, that's Christ, hands over the kingdom to the God and Father when He has abolished all rule and authority and power. So, it's verse 27 that makes it clear that the Father was the one who subjected all things under the Son's feet, which includes death at the very end. And as before, Paul's not here. He's, he's not trying to say Christ did one thing, God did another thing. That's not what he's doing. God is the one who's responsible for subjecting all things to Christ, which He did through Christ when He raised Him from the dead. So Paul says that the only one who is not subjected to the Son, and this is kind of obvious, well, that's the Father. Why? Because He was the one who subjected all things to the Son. So He Himself is not subjected to the Son. For example, we see this when Jesus prayed in the garden. Remember what He prayed. He said, not my will, but yours be done. Right? It's not, it's not uh, the other way around. Right? Sons are subject to their fathers, not fathers to sons. So by referring to Jesus here in verse 28 as the Son, Paul is highlighting the Son's subjection to His will, right? to God's will. So the role of the Son is to be subject to the Father. And this in no way implies that the Son is inferior in His person. Right? The Son is God, and the Father is God, and the Spirit is God. There is only one God. But in the plan of this one God, there is the person of the Father, whose um, will the person of the Son gladly subjects himself to and submits to. And then it's the Father's pleasure in turn to subject all things to the Son by raising him from the dead. So all the enemies of God who, who from the time of the garden all the way down through the history of mankind have opposed Him, have sought to oppress His people, have sought to thwart God's plan, all of them will be overthrown. The last enemy left standing is death. You know, I was, as I was preparing this sermon, what came to my mind was the climactic, one of the climactic scenes in that movie, Dances with Wolves. If you haven't, most everyone by now has probably seen Dances with Wolves. It was made in the 90s. It put Kevin Costner totally on the map. So this scene, if you recall the movie, there's a scene where, where the warriors of this Sioux tribe where, where Dances with Wolves is his name. John Dunbar is, is what his name is in the, in the movie. He's become associated with this group, this tribe of Lakota Sioux, and 
a war party of, of is, is leaving to go do what they're going to do. And John ba- Don, Dunbar wants to go. But they say, no, no, you can't go. This is our fight. It's not your fight. And they say, you stay here and watch over our camp. So they still honor him. They, they appreciate that he wanted to go. But they say, no, you stay here and actually protect our women and children and older, older men and older women. So he's not allowed to go. Well, after the warriors have gone and left the camp, only then do they find out that their enemies, the Pawnee, have sent a raiding party to their camp. So Dunbar goes back to his fort. He gathers up all the guns, all the ammunition that he had stored there. He brings it back and he equips and arms all the older men and the women and even some of the younger ones in the camp who were not able to go yet on that warrior ride. And so they're all waiting there. And the Pawnees show up and they think that it's going to be easy pickings. We're going to do most damage to this tribe because while the warriors are away, we're going to kill everybody else. Little do they know they've just walked into a trap. The Pawnee are overwhelmed. And many of them are killed. Of course, there's always got to be one antagonist. There's one really, really bad guy. The leader of the Pawnee party, war party, is this main bad guy. And he's, he's the fiercest, the most bloodthirsty of all of them. He's the most to be feared. But by the time he realized that this battle was lost, it was already too late. He tried to escape. He, he did kill one of, the, one of the good guys and got on his horse. And he's trying to ride out. But everywhere he rides, you see people of the tribe surrounding him and eventually it ends up in this showdown in the middle of the river by which they're encamped and they've all encircled him most of them are on foot he's still on his horse and he tries riding this way and they just close him out he tries riding this way they just close him out he's circled and he knows it's over because they're all sitting there pointing their guns at him he gives one last final shout and then they all shoot together and he's just knocked off his horse he's dead their enemy is dead. See, that day is coming for death itself. Only the victory will belong not to us as if we're surrounding death. It belongs to Christ alone. See, at that time, having accomplished all that the Father sent the Son to do, the reign of the Son will be completed. And He will hand all rule of this glorious kingdom to the Father that God may, once again, as He was in eternity past, be all in all. This speaks of the the unchallenged reign of God alone when the will of the one and only God will be supreme. It will be supreme in every corner of creation and in every possible way. All things, Paul says in Romans 11.36, are from Him and through Him and to Him. Everything that exists both comes from Him, it belongs to Him, and they are for His purposes. And when it comes to God's redemptive purposes in Christ, all things finally will be united in Him. This is the outworking of God's plan for the fullness of time, which is to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. See, with the death of death, this final rupture in the universe 
will be healed. Christ will have completely reversed all that sin distorted and destroyed. He will hand over a victorious kingdom to His Father in where there are no equals and God alone will rule undivided and with total power over all beings. All who have rejected the divine offer of life will be banished forever. And all those who have entered into God's rest will be brought into and under His loving rule. Where are you going to be on that day? Where would you want to be on that day? Friend, seek His pardon today. Lest you find yourself one of His enemies. Bow to Him. Confess your rebellion against Him. Leading your own life the way you want to, regardless of what God wants for you. That's why you need to bow to Him. Plead for His forgiveness. Because He will gladly give it to all who put their faith in His Son. So this is one of the great passages in the New Testament that show us the true significance of Christ's resurrection. It is far, far more than just proof that we will one day be raised. The resurrection of Christ has determined our existence for all time and all eternity. We are not just called to live out our days, however many they may be, knowing, you know, that in the end, we have the hope of resurrection. Rather, no, as Paul has made plain for us in this passage, with the resurrection of Christ, God has set in motion a chain of unstoppable events that absolutely determines both our present and our future. Christ is the first fruits of those who belong to Him and who will be raised at His coming. And knowing this ought to change the way we currently live. It ought to reshape our worship of Christ who is sovereign over life and God who is supreme over all. Amen? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we bow before You. The one and only God There are many competitors, but they are nothing compared to you. There are many things that we can erect in our hearts that compete with you, but they are nothing to you. They will all fall and they will all fail. Only Christ will prevail over all. And he is a glorious ruler and a wonderful Savior. Oh, may you be at work. Strengthen the hands that are weary and weak. Cause them to look not so much at the world. Not to listen to the reports of the news or the various websites and so forth that all speak such depressing news of a a world that seems to be going to pot. Fix our eyes on Christ, our glorious and victorious Savior. So that we will live not despairingly as if there is no hope. But looking to that day of victory that is coming. Nothing can stop it. And let us live in light of that victory. Because on that day, when Christ returns, 
is the day that we long to hear the words of well done, good and faithful servant. Let us be faithful to what we have heard today. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.